division eight part two of human all too human a book for free spirits by friedrich nietzsche translated by helen zimmern this librivox recording is in the public domain eighth division a glance at the state part two four seventy two religion and government so long as the state or more properly the government regards itself as the appointed guardian of a number of minors and on their account considers the question whether religion should be preserved or abolished it is highly probable that it will always decide for the preservation thereof for religion satisfies the nature of the individual in times of loss destitution terror and distrust in cases therefore where the government feels itself incapable of doing anything directly for the mitigation of the spiritual sufferings of the individual indeed even in general unavoidable and next to inevitable evils famines financial crises and wars religion gives to the masses an attitude of tranquillity and confiding expectancy whenever the necessary or accidental deficiencies of the state government or the dangerous consequences of dynastic interests strike the eyes of the intelligent and make them refractory the unintelligent will only think they see the finger of god therein and will submit with patience to the dispensations from on high a conception in which divine and human modes of government usually coalesce thus internal civil peace and continuity of development will be preserved the power which lies in the unity of popular feeling in the existence of the same opinions and aims for all is protected and confirmed by religion the rare cases excepted in which a priesthood cannot agree with the state about the price and therefore comes into conflict with it as a rule the state will know how to win over the priests because it needs their most private and secret system for educating souls and knows how to value servants who apparently and outwardly represent quite other interests even at present no power can become legitimate without the assistance of the priests a fact which napoleon understood thus absolutely paternal government and the careful preservation of religion necessarily go hand in hand in this connection it must be taken for granted that the rulers and governing classes are enlightened concerning the advantages which religion affords and consequently feel themselves to a certain extent superior to it inasmuch as they use it as a means thus freedom of spirit has its origin here but how will it be when the totally different interpretation of the idea of government such as is taught in democratic states begins to prevail when one sees in it nothing but the instrument of the popular will no upper in contrast to an under but merely a function of the sole sovereign the people here also only the same attitude which the people assume towards religion can be assumed by the government every diffusion of enlightenment will have to find an echo even in the representatives and the utilizing and exploiting of religious impulses and consolations for state purposes will not be so easy unless powerful party leaders occasionally exercise an influence resembling that of enlightened despotism when however the state is not permitted to derive any further advantage from religion or when people think far too variously on religious matters to allow the state to adopt a consistent and uniform procedure with respect to them the way out of the difficulty will necessarily present itself namely to treat religion as a private affair and leave it to the conscience and custom of each single individual the first result of all is that religious feeling seems to be strengthened inasmuch as hidden and suppressed impulses thereof which the state had unintentionally or intentionally stifled 
now break forth and rush to extremes later on however it is found that religion is overgrown with sects and that an abundance of dragon's teeth were sown as soon as religion was made a private affair the spectacle of strife and the hostile laying bare of all the weaknesses of religious confessions admit finally of no other expedient except that every better and more talented person should make irreligiousness his private affair a sentiment which now obtains the upper hand even in the minds of the governing classes and almost against their will gives an anti-religious character to their measures as soon as this happens the sentiment of persons still religiously disposed who formerly adored the state as something half sacred or wholly sacred changes into decided hostility to the state they lie in wait for governmental measures seeking to hinder thwart and disturb as much as they can and by the fury of their contradiction drive the opposing parties the irreligious ones into an almost fanatical enthusiasm for the state in connection with which there is also the silently cooperating influence that since their separation from religion the hearts of persons in these circles are conscious of a void and seek by devotion to the state to provide themselves provisionally with a substitute for religion a kind of stuffing for the void after these perhaps lengthy transitional struggles it is finally decided whether the religious parties are still strong enough to revive an old condition of things and turn the wheel backwards in which case enlightened despotism perhaps less enlightened and more timorous than formerly inevitably gets the state into its hands or whether the non-religious parties achieve their purpose and possibly through schools and education check the increase of their opponents during several generations and finally make them no longer possible then however their enthusiasm for the state also abates it always becomes more obvious that along with the religious adoration which regards the state as a mystery and a supernatural institution the reverent and pious relation to it has also been convulsed henceforth individuals see only that side of the state which may be useful or injurious to them and press forward by all means to obtain an influence over it but this rivalry soon becomes too great men and parties change too rapidly and throw each other down again too furiously from the mountain when they have only just succeeded in getting aloft all the measures which such a government carries out lack the guarantee of permanence people then fight shy of undertakings which would require the silent growth of future decades or centuries to produce ripe fruit nobody henceforth feels any other obligation to a law than to submit for the moment to the power which introduced the law people immediately set to work however to undermine it by a new power a newly formed majority finally it may be confidently asserted the distrust of all government the insight into the useless and harassing nature of these short-winded struggles must drive men to an entirely new resolution to the abrogation of the conception of the state and the abolition of the contrast of private and public private concerns gradually absorb the business of the state even the toughest residue which is left over from the old work of governing the business for instance which is meant to protect private persons from private persons will at last some day be managed by private enterprise the neglect decline and death of the state the liberation of the private person i am careful not to say the individual are the consequences of the democratic conception of the state that is its mission when it has accomplished its task which like everything human involves much rationality and irrationality and when all relapses into the old malady have been overcome then a new leaf in the story-book of humanity will be unrolled on which readers will find all kinds of strange tales and perhaps also some amount of good to repeat shortly what has been said the interests of the tutelary government and the interests of religion go hand in hand so that when the latter begins to decay 
the foundations of the state are also shaken the belief in a divine regulation of political affairs in a mystery in the existence of the state is of religious origin if a religion disappears the state will inevitably lose its old veil of isis and will no longer arouse veneration the sovereignty of the people looked at closely serves also to dispel the final fascination and superstition in the realm of these sentiments modern democracy is the historical form of the decay of the state the outlook which results from this certain decay is not however unfortunate in every respect the wisdom and the selfishness of men are the best developed of all their qualities when the state no longer meets the demands of these impulses chaos will least of all result but a still more appropriate expedient than the state will get the mastery over the state how man organizing forces have already been seen to die out for example that of the jean or clan which for millennia was far mightier than the power of the family and indeed already ruled and regulated long before the latter existed we ourselves see the important notions of the right and might of the family which once possessed the supremacy as far as the roman system extended always becoming paler and feebler in the same way a later generation will also see the state become meaningless in certain parts of the world an idea which many contemporaries can hardly contemplate without alarm and horror to labor for the propagation and realization of this idea is certainly another thing one must think very presumptuously of one's reason and only half understand history to set one's hand to the plough at present when as yet no one can show us the seeds that are afterwards to be sown upon the broken soil let us therefore trust to the wisdom and selfishness of men that the state may yet exist a good while longer and that the destructive attempts of overzealous too hasty sealists may be in vain four seventy three socialism with regard to its means socialism is the fantastic younger brother of almost decrepit despotism which it wants to succeed its efforts are therefore in the deepest sense reactionary for it desires such an amount of state power as only despotism has possessed indeed it outdoes all the past in that it aims at the complete annihilation of the individual whom it deems an unauthorized luxury of nature which is to be improved by it into an appropriate organ of the general community owing to its relationship it always appears in proximity to excessive developments of power like the old typical socialist plato at the court of the sicilian tyrant it desires and under certain circumstances furthers the caesarian despotism of this century because as has been said it would like to become its heir but even this inheritance would not suffice for its objects it requires the most submissive prostration of all citizens before the absolute state such as has never yet been realized and as it can no longer even count upon the old religious piety towards the state but must rather strive involuntarily and continuously for the abolition thereof because it strives for the abolition of all existing states it can only hope for existence occasionally here and there for short periods by means of the extremist terrorism it is therefore silently preparing itself for reigns of terror and drives the word justice like a nail into the heads of the half-cultured masses in order to deprive them completely of their understanding after they had already suffered seriously from the half-culture and to provide them with a good conscience for the bad game they are to play socialism may serve to teach very brutally and impressively the danger of all accumulations of state power and may serve so far to inspire distrust of the state itself when its rough voice strikes up the war cry as much state as possible the shout at first becomes louder than ever but soon the opposition cry also breaks forth with so much greater force as little state as possible 
474 the development of the mind feared by the state the greek polis was like every organizing political power exclusive and distrustful of the growth of culture its powerful fundamental impulse seemed almost solely to have a paralyzing and obstructive effect thereon it did not want to let any history or any becoming have a place in culture the education laid down in the state laws was meant to be obligatory on all generations to keep them at one stage of development plato also later on did not desire it to be otherwise in his ideal state in spite of the polis culture developed itself in this manner indirectly to be sure and against its will the polis furnished assistance because the ambition of individuals therein was stimulated to the utmost so that having once found the path of intellectual development they followed it to its farthest extremity on the other hand appeal should not be made to the panegyric of pericles for it is only a great optimistic dream about the alleged necessary connection between the polis and athenian culture immediately before the night fell over athens the plague and the breakdown of tradition thucydides makes this culture flash up once more like of the evil day that had preceded four seventy five european man and the destruction of nationalities commerce and industry interchange of books and letters the universality of all higher culture the rapid changing of locality and landscape and the present nomadic life of all who are not landowners these circumstances necessarily bring with them a weakening and finally a destruction of nationalities at least of european nationalities so that in consequence of perpetual crossings there must arise out of them all a mixed race that of the european man at present the isolation of nations through the rise of national enmities consciously or unconsciously counteracts this tendency but nevertheless the process of fusing advances slowly in spite of those occasional counter-currents this artificial nationalism is however as dangerous as was artificial catholicism for it is essentially an unnatural condition of extremity and martial law which has been proclaimed by the few over the many and requires artifice lying and force to maintain its reputation it is not the interests of the many of the peoples as they probably say but it is first of all the interests of certain princely dynasties and then of certain commercial and social classes which impel to this nationalism once we have recognized this fact we should just fearlessly style ourselves good europeans and labor actively for the amalgamation of nations in which efforts germans may assist by virtue of their hereditary position as interpreters and intermediaries between nations by the way the great problem of the jews only exists within the national states inasmuch as their energy and higher intelligence their intellectual and volitional capital accumulated from generation to generation in tedious schools of suffering must necessarily attain to universal supremacy here to an extent provocative of envy and hatred so that the literary misconduct is becoming prevalent in almost all modern nations and all the more so as they again set up to be national of sacrificing the jews as the scapegoats of all possible public and private abuses so soon as it is no longer a question of the preservation or establishment of nations but of the production and training of a european mixed race of the greatest possible strength the jew is just as useful and desirable and ingredient as any other national remnant every nation every individual has unpleasant and even dangerous qualities it is cruel to require that the jew should be an exception those qualities may even be dangerous and frightful in a special degree in his case and perhaps the young stock exchange jew is in general the most repulsive invention of the human species nevertheless in a general summing up i should like to know how much must be excused in a nation which 
not without blame on the part of all of us has had the most mournful history of all nations and to which we owe the most loving of men christ the most upright of sages spinoza the mightiest book and the most effective moral law in the world moreover in the darkest times of the middle ages when asiatic clouds had gathered darkly over europe it was jewish freethinkers scholars and physicians who upheld the banner of enlightenment and of intellectual independence under the severest personal sufferings and defended europe against asia we owe it not least to their efforts that a more natural more reasonable at all events unmythical explanation of the world was finally able to get the upper hand once more and that the link of culture which now unites us with the enlightenment of graeco-roman antiquity has remained unbroken if christianity has done everything to orientalize the occident judaism has assisted essentially in occidentalizing it anew which in a certain sense is equivalent to making europe's mission and history a continuation of that of greece four seventy six apparent superiority of the middle ages the middle ages present in the church an institution with an absolutely universal aim involving the whole of humanity an aim moreover which presumably concerned man's highest interests in comparison therewith the aims of the states and nations which modern history exhibits make a painful impression they seem petty base material and restricted in extent but this different impression on our imagination should certainly not determine our judgment for that universal institution corresponded to feigned and fictitiously fostered needs such as the need of salvation which wherever they did not already exist it had first of all to create the new institutions however relieve actual distresses and the time is coming when institutions will arise to minister to the common genuine needs of all men and to cast that fantastic prototype the catholic church into shade and oblivion four seventy seven war indispensable it is nothing but fanaticism and beautiful soulism to expect very much or even much only from humanity when it has forgotten how to wage war for the present we know of no other means whereby the rough energy of the camp the deep impersonal hatred the cold-bloodedness of murder with a good conscience the general ardor of the system in the destruction of the enemy the proud indifference to great losses to one's own existence and that of one's friends the hollow earthquake-like convulsion of the soul can be as forcibly and certainly communicated to enervated nations as is done by every great war owing to the brooks and streams that here break forth which certainly sweep stones and rubbish of all sorts along with them and destroy the meadows of delicate cultures the mechanism in the workshops of the mind is afterwards in favourable circumstances rotated by new power culture can by no means dispense with passions vices and malignities when the romans after having become imperial had grown rather tired of war they attempted to gain new strength by beast baitings gladiatorial combats and christian persecutions the english of to-day who appear in the whole to have also renounced war adopt other means in order to generate anew those vanishing forces namely the dangerous exploring expeditions sea voyages and mountaineerings nominally undertaken for scientific purposes but in reality to bring home surplus strength from adventures and dangers of all kinds many other such substitutes for war will be discovered but perhaps precisely thereby it will become more and more obvious that such a highly cultivated and therefore necessarily enfeebled humanity as that of modern europe not only needs wars but the greatest and most terrible wars consequently occasional relapses into barbarism lest by the means of culture it should lose its culture and its very existence four seventy eight industry in the south and the north industry arises in two entirely different ways 
the artisans of the south are not industrious because of acquisitiveness but because of the constant needs of others the smith is industrious because some one is always coming who wants a horse shod or a carriage mended if nobody came he would loiter about in the market-place in a fruitful land he has little trouble in supporting himself for that purpose he requires only a very small amount of work certainly no industry eventually he would beg and be contented the industry of english workmen on the contrary has acquisitiveness behind it it is conscious of itself and its aims with property it wants power and with power the greatest possible liberty and individual distinction four seventy nine wealth as the origin of a nobility of race wealth necessarily creates an aristocracy of race for it permits the choice of the most beautiful women and the engagement of the best teachers it allows a man cleanliness time for physical exercises and above all immunity from dulling physical labor so far it provides all the conditions for making man after a few generations move and even act nobly and handsomely greater freedom of character and absence of niggardliness of wretchedly petty matters and of abasement before bread-givers it is precisely these negative qualities which are the most profitable birthday gift that of happiness for the young man a person who is quite poor usually comes to grief through nobility of disposition he does not get on and acquires nothing his race is not capable of living in this connection however it must be remembered that wealth produces almost the same effects whether one have three hundred or thirty thousand dollars a year there is no further essential progression of the favorable conditions afterwards but to have less to beg in boyhood and to abase oneself is terrible although it may be the proper starting-point for such as seek their happiness in the splendor of courts in subordination to the mighty and influential or for such as wish to be heads of the church it teaches how to slink crouching into the underground passages to favor four eighty envy and inertia in different courses the two opposing parties the socialist and the national or whatever they may be called in the different countries of europe are worthy of each other envy and laziness are the motive powers in each of them in the one camp they desire to work as little as possible with their hands in the other as little as possible with their heads in the latter they hate and envy prominent self-evolving individuals who do not willingly allow themselves to be drawn up in rank and file for the purpose of a collective effect in the former they hate and envy the better social caste which is more favorably circumstanced outwardly whose peculiar mission the production of the highest blessings of culture makes life inwardly all the harder and more painful certainly if it be possible to make the spirit of the collective effect the spirit of the higher classes of society the socialist crowds are quite right when they also seek outward equalization between themselves and these classes since they are certainly internally equalized with one another already in head and heart live as higher men and always do the deeds of higher culture thus everything that lives will acknowledge your right and the order of society whose summit ye are will be safe from every evil glance and attack four eighty one high politics and their detriments just as a nation does not suffer the greatest losses that war and readiness for war involve through the expenses of the war or the stoppage of trade and traffic or through the maintenance of a standing army however great these losses may now be when eight european states expend yearly the sum of five millions of marks thereon but owing to the fact that year after year its ablest strongest and most industrious men are withdrawn in extraordinary numbers from their proper occupations and callings to be turned into soldiers in the same way a nation that sets about practising high politics and securing a decisive voice among the great powers does not suffer its greatest losses where they are usually supposed to be in fact from this time onward it constantly sacrifices 
a number of its most conspicuous talents upon the altar of the fatherland or of national ambition whilst formerly other spheres of activity were open to those talents which are now swallowed up by politics but apart from these public hecatombs and in reality much more horrible there is a drama which is constantly being performed simultaneously in a hundred thousand acts every able industrious intellectually striving man of a nation that thus covets political laurels he is swayed by this covetousness and no longer belongs entirely to himself alone as he did formerly the new daily questions and cares of the public welfare devour a daily tribute of the intellectual and emotional capital of every citizen the sum of all these sacrifices and losses of individual energy and labor is so enormous that the political growth of a nation almost necessarily entails an intellectual impoverishment and lassitude a diminished capacity for the performance of works that require great concentration and specialization the question may finally be asked does it then pay all this bloom and magnificence of the total which indeed only manifests itself as the fear of the new colossus in other nations and as the compulsory favoring by them of national trade and commerce when all the nobler finer and more intellectual plants and products in which its soil was hitherto so rich must be sacrificed to this coarse and opalescent flower of the nation forty two repeated once more public opinion private laziness End of Division 8, Part 2